It's uh, Resurrection Day, Easter Sunday, and we're going to look at one of the accounts of that first Easter Sunday. We're looking at John's Gospel today, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. It's uh, at that time about a week after the triumphal entry. And Pastor David walked us through that passage from John's Gospel last week. And it was many chapters before this because John gives us an extended look at the prayer and the interactions between Jesus and the disciples on that last night in particular. But here we are at, at toward the end of John's Gospel and we find a week after the triumphal entry a woman named Mary Magdalene and she's going to the tomb in the stillness and the darkness of a very early Sunday morning probably leaving before the sun was fully up, still dark, perhaps getting to this tomb as the sun was rising. And what does she find? And what are the others who come after her find? What are the facts? And where do those facts lead? That's what I want us to consider today as we look at God's Word from John chapter 20. Verses 1 through 10. This is God's holy, inspired, infallible, life-giving word. John chapter 20, verse 1 and following. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb and then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. This is God's Word. Lord, please bless now our eyes, our ears, our hearts. Open up Your Word to us. Let it be more than ink on paper, pixels on the screen, sound waves hitting our eardrums. Let it give new life and strengthen us with faith. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this Mary is called Magdalene. She's she's not the mother of Jesus, and she's not 
one of the other several Marys that show up in the Gospel accounts. She is Mary Magdalene, which is just a way of saying she's Mary from the city of Magdala, which is actually a town not far away from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up there in Galilee. And she is the one from whom seven demons were cast out at some point in the past. And she has followed Jesus now for many years, as near as we can tell. And she was probably not alone as she went to the tomb on that early morning. It's possible. The text isn't isn't super clear. But she does say, we do not know what's happened to him. And the other gospel accounts mention other women there. So she comes to the tomb. And it's possible, you know, she made two trips. But either way, John focuses on this Mary from Magdala. And probably because she's about to be the first person to see the resurrected and risen Jesus. That follows after what we're looking at today, and it's a story for another day, and we'll cover that, Lord willing, someday in the future. But here, the story is focused on Mary, and Mary gives us the first of three key facts I want us to see today. In fact, it is those facts that lead to faith, if we grasp them and understand them. Faith is not, as some today picture it, maybe you have this image as well, faith is not a a blind leap into a dark chasm, hoping something will happen good, but not really knowing for sure. That is not a biblical faith, and that's not what we see in this passage, actually. Faith is rooted in reality. Faith, to be a truly biblical faith, is rooted in facts. And the thing is that facts are just facts, right? And you have to put them together to form a picture or, as some would say, a theory that explains how all these things make sense. And there are various theories about life in the world and different perspectives. But I would say if you would engage this story, if you would listen to the facts that are here, keeping an open mind, that you will find the only explanation not only that makes sense of this happening, but of life. And the only way to find hope for the future. So let's dig in. Let's look at these facts from the early followers of Jesus and see where these facts will lead you. And where they lead them. So fact number one. The stone was taken away. The stone was taken away. Look at verse one. Now on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday morning. Actually, the first day of the week for a Jew in those days started on Saturday night. The Sabbath went from Friday night, as we would call it, to Saturday evening at sundown. And then it would become Sunday. It's a little different way of telling time than what we do for most of the Western world. So on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. It's not clear there. It doesn't say if she looked into the tomb to see what was going on in there. But she definitely saw that the stone that had been placed over the tomb 
was moved. And maybe it was still dark and she couldn't see inside. Maybe it was beginning to be dawn and she could see in a little bit. But back then, the tomb was most likely a cave. You've probably seen this by now. A lot of the graphics that people share on Easter are, are you know, a cave with maybe a, 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 a stone rolled away from it, maybe a round stone. Very often they would be set in kind of a divot in the ground and you would have a very heavy stone that would take some good strength to move out of the way to be able to get into the tomb. And you would go into the tomb instead of, you know, a hole in the ground as we would typically use in the West. And so this cave, like tomb, is there open. Somehow that stone was moved out of the way. And so that's our, our first fact. Fact one, the stone is taken away. And that leads to the first theory. What happened? What explains this? How do you make sense of the stone no longer being there? And Mary is our, our first theory. Look at verse 2. She says, someone stole the body. Verse 2 at the end. She said to Simon Peter and the other disciple, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we, maybe there was others with her, right? Do not know where they have laid him. Right? Her, the first theory of what happened to Jesus and why the stone is out of the way. And so maybe she did look in because it seems like she thinks he's not there. She might be guessing. But anyway, Mary's first theory is, they did it. Notice what she doesn't come up with as a theory. Oh, empty tomb. Hallelujah. Jesus is risen. Right? That's not what she says. Is that in your Bible? Yeah. She doesn't say, back, come back and go, oh, hallelujah. He is risen. And then what all the disciples say? He is no, they don't say that. <laughs> she didn't say that either, right? That, She's like, somebody took his body. Grave robberies became a problem within about a decade of this. One of the Caesars, I can't remember which one, actually passed laws that made it a capital crime. You could be killed for robbing graves. It happened. Right? People would break into graves and they would steal stuff because people would get buried with stuff. And they would have things that were valuable, even, even just the linen that people were wrapped in for the burial practices would be valuable. And very often they would have other things with them, right? So grave robbery happened. And that seems to be the conclusion of the theory. Maybe she's thinking the enemies of Jesus took the body. We, we don't know. But she's thinking somebody took him. They took him. And the people respond not with, oh, he's risen indeed. But what? They run off. In fact, that leads to fact two. Number one is the stone is taken away. Number two, fact number two is... The tomb is empty. Look at verse 3. Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And the other disciple, this is not Peter, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. We're pretty sure that the other disciple mentioned here with Peter is John, the author of John's Gospel. He refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. He, along with his brother James and Peter, were sort of the very inner circle. 
You had, you know, the mass of followers of Jesus, the crowds around, then the, you know, the followers of Jesus. Then you had the 12 who were particularly called. And then there were the three, Peter, James, and John, that Jesus would take with him in those most uh, important of events. It was only those three who were with him up on the mountain of transfiguration, if you remember that story. They were the close circle. They would probably all be referred to as, you know, something like the ones Jesus loved. But here John seems to be expressing some maybe humility, not naming himself. Uh, but they, they were together in the inner circle of Jesus. In fact, Peter would be named uh, Cephas, the stone, right? James and John were called the sons of thunder. I'm telling you, man, wouldn't that be cool if Jesus gave you the nickname son of thunder? I don't know, guys. Do you, I mean, like that would be like, just like, you're sons. I'd be like, yes. Jesus said, I'm the son of thunder. And it wasn't quite like, you know, it was like any other nickname you pick up. It wasn't quite flattering, actually. You look back in the context. But we don't have time to talk about that right now. So Jesus gives these inner circle guys nicknames. Uh, and they are a part of it. And John tells this story of going to the tomb, probably, you know, with Peter and, and John running to the tomb. And notice what he says. The two were running together, and the other disciple, who was me, by the way, right, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and he did not go in. Now, I don't know. You know, John, maybe now perfected in heaven awaiting his new body, wouldn't say this, but I kind of have a feeling that John on earth would be like, that's fact number two, really. It's not the empty tomb. It's that I beat Peter to the tomb. Right? I just, I don't know. Maybe that's me. Maybe I'm messed up. But I have a feeling like, you know, these are, these are friends. These are real human guys who were fishermen and worked together. Right? They're going to they're gonna mess with each other. And I could just, I don't know. I mean, I, I could be wrong. I'm willing to be corrected on that one. But it just feels like he's like, I got there first. Humble, humble brag. Just joking around with a friend, right? So anyway, that's really not the second fact, probably. No offense to John. And most likely, uh, some, one of the theories is that John was a good bit younger than Peter. So he would be maybe a little faster. I don't know. We don't know. Younger people aren't necessarily always faster, are they? They are in my house. I don't know. So... Fact number two is, I would say, actually, that the tomb was empty, almost empty, except for a key thing, these linen burial wrappings and the face covering. Look at verse 6. And so Simon Peter also came following him, because he was slower, right? Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So obviously the big news is that the body of Jesus is gone. You know, he's going, uh, Peter has gone into the tomb, and he sees, okay, the body of Jesus is gone. But... The grave clothes, the, the linen wrappings, you know, it wasn't quite mummification, but they would wrap the dead body in linen cloths and they would anoint it with various spices and prepare it for burial. 
Uh, and a lot of times there were burial boxes. If you look into this, uh, I think they're called ostraca uh, in, in those days. Some of it depended on how much money you had. But you would, you would put the body there and wrap it in linens and anoint it with spices. And, and it was a, just a, as much as a common thing as we use caskets and we have graves of such and such a thing and they're pointed in a certain direction and we do certain formalities, right? That's what they did. So they wrapped the body in these linen cloths and anointed with spices and that kind of thing. And those are the only things that are there as well as the head covering uh, another cloth, separate cloth, that would be wrapped around the head. So the big news is Jesus' body is no longer there, but then the, the almost as big news, and I think it's more impactful in a way for John, is that the grave clothes are still there. And, and it's not clear in the text you know, what they look like other than you know, they're still there. And the implication is maybe the, the, the linen wrappings are there still on maybe the, the platform where his body was. And then the head covering is not just sitting there where, you know, his head would have been, but has been like rolled up, neatly folded, however you want to picture it, and set to the side. As if someone said, I'm done with this. Think about that for a moment. You know, it seems like maybe Jesus, it does, it's not clear, but I, I would picture it as Jesus in his glorified spiritual body, now resurrected for the new heaven and the new earth. He's already ready, right? And he can pass through walls. We'll see that in the other gospel accounts, right? And with Doubting Thomas, it happens in a moment in this chapter uh, later on, right? But it seems like he kind of can pass through things so maybe just passes through these linen cloths these wrappings and so they're laying there but he's also has substance right so he can fold up this head covering and put it there as kind of a message if you're looking if your eyes are open if you're willing to believe it to say <clears throat> he's done with that he doesn't need a head covering over his dead body because he's alive Jesus is risen it's okay to say it now he is risen he is risen Amen, right? <clears throat> and here's the other thing, right? This is not a scene left behind by grave robbers, yes. right? This is not a scene left behind by conspiring disciples who want to trick the world, right? Why would they leave this stuff behind? It doesn't make sense of the facts. If someone had stolen the body or if he had just kind of swooned and awoken, this does not seem like the thing's he would do. Plus, how would he get out and move the stone after having been crucified and remaining in the tomb for any amount of time? There's something more going on, right? So theory one has to be ruled out. They didn't do it, whoever they are. Because not only is the stone rolled away, but the tomb is empty except for the grave clothes, the linen wrappings. So then the question is, well, who did it? And that leads us to fact three, which is one that's, that's not exactly in the text, but requires us to just step back for a second. And fact three is this. The followers of Jesus are surprised. The stone was rolled away and that the tomb is empty. They did not expect these things. 
that seems to be a clear fact based on what we're reading here of their account. They weren't expecting this. Resurrection was not what the followers of Jesus were expecting. Mary went expecting a dead body. She went expecting a closed tomb. In fact, in the other gospel accounts, it's like, oh, wait, who's going to open the tomb for us? As the women went there, who's going to roll away the stone for us? She went there preparing, uh, prepared to, to, to do the burial preparations and traditions that, that she was accustomed to on a dead body of someone she loved dearly. And when she saw the empty tomb, she figured grave robbers had plundered it because the body of Jesus couldn't move itself Right? Right? And so she was not expecting it. Peter and John, when she comes and says, the, the stone is rolled away and they have taken the body of our Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. They didn't go, duh, Mary. Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead and he probably went ahead of us into Galilee. Like he told us. Did they say that? No. They're like, what? Wait, huh? What? And they ran off to see what had happened. Right? They, they weren't expecting it either. Resurrection was not what the followers of Jesus were expecting. It's so unusual, even for those who had seen Jesus literally raise the dead multiple times. There was that widow's son, and there was most recently Lazarus, the friend of Jesus that he dramatically raised from the dead, calling him forth from the tomb. You know, it's hard. It's, that's how hard it is to believe this. And so, you know, it's okay for you to struggle with it. It's okay to wrestle with this. But what I'd say is not okay for you to dismiss it without considering it. Because the biblical text owns this is hard. So if you think any one of us is here and we're just naive and stupid and haven't considered the facts, I'd encourage you to consider the facts. To read this story for yourself. Very often, too often, those who reject this account have not read it. So if you're tuning in, if you're here today and you have not read through any of the Gospels, much less a lot of the Bible. Do that, please. Before you argue any opinion whatsoever, do the work of reading what it says and see for yourself. And if you have questions, I would love to talk to you about it. Pastor Dave would love to talk to you about it. I'm guessing just about anybody in this room would be happy to talk to you about it. Not tell you what to believe, but to help you understand what it says so you can believe or not. It's hard to believe. Even the followers of Jesus that he had repeatedly said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected and betrayed. I will be crucified and dead and I will rise again. These, these folks were not expecting it. They were not expecting it at all. Even though they had seen Jesus raise someone from the dead. John alone seems to get it. And the facts lead him to faith. Look at verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, he had to get it in one last time, right? 
<laughs> Don't forget, I was fastest, John says. I, I got there first. The other disciple, John, who had come first come to the tomb, then also entered. He, you know, he watched Peter go in. Peter looks around. John then enters into the tomb. So by the way, there's a big enough tomb for two people to go in there, apparently, right? Uh, a cave of, of decent size. And later on, we'll read there's two angels in there. It's, it's a relatively big room, and it's a cave-like place, okay? And he saw and believed. What, what did he believe? What did he see? Um, some people would say, well, he believed now finally that Mary was telling the truth, that the body was gone. That, that doesn't seem to be sufficient, right? He, he, she just said the clear facts, right? He's used this word believe. In fact, in John chapter 20, he tells that the whole purpose of his writing just a little while after this. He says in John 20, verse 30, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You know, the Gospel of John is so beautiful because it tells you, here's why I'm writing. Right? Sometimes you've got to wrestle with that. Any book you read, right? You read Bible books, it's like, okay, I think this is what his point is. John's like, here's my point. I'm giving you a bunch of signs, seven in fact, that I want you to consider. And I have written them down. I could have written a whole bunch of others, but I think these seven signs are sufficient for you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One, and the Son of God. And that believing that's who he is, you might have life. That you might have new life. That you might have eternal life. That you might have unending life of hope and confidence, even in the face of death, darkness. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. John's saying, this is why I'm writing. And it's such an act of humility, I think, given what I think was the kind of subtle boasting on the running, right? John's saying, I finally got it right here at this point in the tomb. It occurred to me, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The, the light bulb goes off in John's head is what it seems. And I think what did it for John is connecting the dots of the various facts and especially these grave clothes and the, the, the face covering being there. And I can't help but imagine John was reminded of that resurrection of Lazarus that happened not that long ago and in fact just on the next hill over in the town of Bethany, right next to Jerusalem. If you flip back to John chapter 11... Jesus gets word that another Mary and her sister Martha have lost their dear brother Lazarus. And when he gets on the scene, Lazarus has been dead for days. In John chapter 11, it describes Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. It was a cave. It says it explicitly. 
a cave, verse 38, and a stone was lying against it. Sound familiar, right? And Jesus said in 1139, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. King James Version says, Lord, by now he stinketh. He has been dead four days. Skip down to verse 43. He said some more things about his purpose. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. They had removed the stone and he cried out with a loud voice saying, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. I, I picture like a mummy almost, right? Some cheap, you know, old horror film where the, oh, you know, he's like coming out. He's got grave clothes, probably like all wrapped up, right? There was dead body. They wrap it up with spices and everything else. It's like pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds of spices probably wrapped around him with the cloth. You know, have you ever been wrapped even in toilet paper and tried to escape? Our kids did that one time. One of them totally panicked. You can't move, right? So here he is. He's coming out. And he's alive, right? He's alive and he's coming out and he's got the thing wrapped around his head and he's got the rest of the stuff wrapped around his body, the face wrapped in the cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. He didn't need anyone to unbind him and let him go. Jesus took care of all of that himself and sent a very clear message. I don't need the grave clothes. I don't need the head covering. We're done with that. And John saw that and he believed. I believe, he says, that basically that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Despite seeing sign after sign after sign after sign after sign after sign after sign, John now finally believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He believes that life wins, that death will not have the final say, which in the world as God has designed it means that sin and brokenness do not win. That guilt and shame and slavery do not win. That power and oppression and abuse don't win. That cancer and chemo and sickness and brokenness and divorce and death do not win. Jesus wins. Life wins. That God sent His Son that you might live, not die. That you might be free, not enslaved. That you might have confidence, not fear. That you might have hope, not despair. John believed it. Verse 9, For as yet, confessing his own limitations, as yet they including me, John, did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. That he is the Son of God and death cannot hold him. 
He tore the bars away that we just sang a moment ago. We used to love, we would sing that song when our kids were really little and we only had a few of them. And it was nighttime around Easter and we would turn the lights out. We got this from a friend of ours and we didn't do it as much as they did. But we would sing that song, you know, and you start the slow part. Well, in the gravy land, Jesus. And then it was like we turned the lights on and it was, up from the grave he rose. Oh, that was terribly off key. Sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> up from, yeah, there you go. That was okay. But like, just and then flick the lights on. There, there's life, there's light. It's like, uh, you know, it's like a dirge. And then there's this joy. He's risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. I'm not hearing everybody in the balcony. <laughs> not to single you out. I'm hearing the folks down here. But I am singling you out. Like all, you know, 100 of you or whatever. But he is risen. He is risen oh, that was good. That was good. You know what we're going to have to do today? After the benediction, you all got to stay. And we're going to say that. And I'm going to record it, okay? From the best seat in the house, okay? So you, are you with me? We'll wait until the service is over. We're good Presbyterians, okay? We're, you know, we're not going to do anything like that in a worship service. But right after the benediction, please stay where you are. And I'm going to ask you, you know, I'm going to say that. You're going to reply. I'm going to video it on my phone, okay? All right, back to the sermon. So the, as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Uh, there's so much in that. We absolutely don't have time to unpack all that's in that. But among other things is there is place and place and place and place and place and place all over what we call the Old Testament saying that God would send a Savior to bring life. That death was not the end of the story. It was right at the beginning of Genesis 3.15 when God said to, to, during the curse, right, that to Satan, you know, you're, you're going to bite his heel, but he's going to crush your skull. That's the first gospel, right? The echoes and the promises of the future that there would be a seed that would come from Abraham and his descendants would be as many as the stars of the heaven. That, uh, that there would be a greater son born to David, not merely Solomon, but Jesus as a descendant of David, the great king that would come. That there would be a prophet better than Moses who would come and speak the truth to his people. That there would be a priest better than any of the Aaronic priests. There would be a sacrifice better than any lamb that was given. That there would be one who would come and be the prophet, the priest, and the king. The one who would take our sin and rule over us. Who would conquer our enemies and set us free. The one who would teach us and instruct us. The one who would send forth the Holy Spirit not better than any tabernacle on earth, better than even that shining, uh, fiery thing that led them in the wilderness for all those years, that He would come and dwell among us in our hearts, that we would never be separated. The Spirit of God might lead us by His Word and His presence among us as we live together. Those promises, that's what Jesus came to fulfill, that He is both Lord and Christ, this Jesus that's the sure testimony of the Scriptures. You know, faith, faith is not standing on the edge of a cliff, uh, you know, looking into darkness or even looking into just an abyss and saying, I'm going to jump anyway. Maybe it'll work out. You know, faith, faith is essentially transferring your trust from one thing to another. 
And if you look at the biblical position on this, essentially what faith in Jesus Christ is all about is saying, you know what, I'm going to trust Him. And the only real other alternative is to trust yourself. Those seem to be the only two things. And the weird thing is, if you really look at your life, right, is it really rational to be trusting yourself? Do you make good decisions? Can I ask your spouse? Can I ask your children? Or your parents? Or your friends? Or anyone who really knows you at all? Do you always make good decisions? Or, you know, have you made some really bad mistakes? You ever said things you didn't want to say? You ever thought something you didn't even want to think? You ever failed to do the thing you knew was right? So this is what faith is. It's saying, you know what? I am not even worthy of my own trust. And Jesus comes along and says, trust me. Jesus says, I came that you might have life. Your choices are going to lead to death. Could be literal physical death. Ultimately, if you choose to follow your own way, it's going to be destruction and eternal death. Jesus has come to me for life. And that doesn't end. Right? These were followers of Jesus, and there's differences between us and them. Obviously, now this side of the cross, we have a lot more, but we're still going to waver, right? And the, and the beauty of the gospel is that we should never get tired of coming back to Jesus. Never get tired of recognizing, you know what, Lord, I know that that rickety old chair over there doesn't hold me up, but man, I keep going sitting in that thing. And it keeps poking me, and it keeps being uncomfortable, and I feel like it's going to fall over. And you have this awful, you know, this awesome sturdy chair here that I could just sit in. It's better than a recliner, right? It's like super comfortable, and it fits, and it's not without trials and struggles. But Lord, it's 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 solid. It's a rock. You know, I, this is a silly illustration, but like we were just on vacation, and. Uh, my wife forgot her hairbrush, and so I brought my hairbrush, and she asked if she could use it, and I was like, sure, and she used it, and she came to me later, and she's like, do you, do you realize, like, your brush does not have the little soft things at the end of all the bristles? <laughs> they keep it from, like, poking and scraping your skull? She didn't say it quite like that. That's my interpretation. Uh, and I was like, no, really? She's like, yeah, you should probably think about getting another brush. So courtesy of Amazon, uh, got a new brush. And, and I was like, oh, I'll try it out. I put it through my hair, and I was like, ooh. I was like, I mean, my hair still looked as awful as it always does, but it felt good. It was like, ooh, this just slides right through my hair, and it's like right on my skull. That kind of feels good. Oh. And I was like, this is crazy. And so I put it on the shelf, and I was like, wow, I had no idea. Apparently, I was brushing my hair with porcupine quills, essentially, right? with daggers just and so what I what I'd done is I was like not really using it and I was staying away from my head I didn't even realize it right you, you do this sometimes you do things and you're like well wait and I got this new tool and I'm using it and I'm like wow I just like just brush everything it's like oh maybe I'll brush my hair more than once a day now <laughs> yeah some of you got that one right my hair is bad I don't take good care of it so this, this is the thing I'm still kind of getting used to that new brush. It's been a week, and every time I go to use it, I realize now I had some kind of apprehension. And it was like I wasn't using it right. And now it's like it actually feels good, and, and it takes a while to get used to that. I don't, you know, there's probably some, it's, it's not that far from, it's silly again, but like, kind of like PTSD or something, right, where you, you, you remember things. 
And it takes a while to walk through those and to find healing. You know, to embrace the truth of the Gospel, to, to put your faith in Jesus Christ is not merely a one-time thing. And there is a place where I mean, almost everybody sort of comes to this crisis. Uh, unless you come to faith as a young adult, uh, I mean, as a young person, very young, you probably don't have that same crisis. But typically, there is a place where you put your faith in Jesus. But that doesn't stop. You know, you're still trying to get used to brushing your hair with, with the, confi the confidence of the gospel, right? Of, of adapting it and putting it into practice in your life. And you continue to remember, oh, this is really good. This actually makes sense of things. How could I have forgotten that, you know, gossip's pretty destructive? How could I have forgotten that, you know what? If I apologize, if I, if I seek the Lord and humble myself and I apologize, usually the other person apologizes too pretty quickly. Like I see it played out in my children all the time. When, when they actually apply the biblical principles, even with coaching, it like goes so much better. That's how messed up we are. That's yet another reason not to put our faith in ourselves, but in Jesus. And you know what? He's risen. He's risen indeed. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are alive, that you are risen, that you call us not to a faith that is just blind, a leap that we don't understand, but to actually look at the facts. And Lord, as we look at the history of the world, as we look at it through the grid of your scriptures, even our own life experiences, as short or as long as they are for each of us, we see that actually your story makes sense of it, that the facts in there line up, Lord. We take that from this little story about the tomb and about something as simple as those grave clothes and the contrast between Lazarus and Jesus. But in the bigger picture as well, the other signs that you did, the, the multitude of witnesses to your resurrection. Lord, there are so many reasons to believe, and I pray especially for those, Lord, who are on the fence, or those who are resistant to your word, that you would move them at least to read. Lord, at least to ask some questions. At least to consider. Lord, for those of us who have come to a saving faith, Lord, for those who are wandering a little bit, revive our hearts. Draw us back to you. To lean more on you. To turn from the brokennesses and the things we keep turning back to, Lord, to rely on you. And Lord, for those maybe who are in a good place and living pretty strongly in the faith, Lord, equip us to share that with others, just with our children, with our spouses, with our friends. Lord, to live by faith because of the facts that you have revealed to us. We pray in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.